Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 2. Uh, if you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers. We're glad you're with us. Maggie has already explained where we are in this series. We're excited to be here. But isn't it awesome that it's not going to be 99 degrees today? Is that good? Yeah, can we thank God for that? My, my, my HVAC needs a Sabbath. Yes. Well, I hope you enjoyed today. We're glad you're here. And uh, I'm excited about this series. James is one of the first books written in the New Testament. It was written to believers like you and I, and written to even those that were listening in on the conversations of believers about the two challenges the early church faced, persecution and false doctrine. And in this series, we want to talk about five things that James points out that each one of us, I think, are going to be interested in. Last week, we talked about trust. Today, we're going to talk about faith. Next week, we'll talk about self-control. And then in week four, we'll talk about humility. And then in week five, we'll talk about justice. What is biblical justice? What does it truly mean? What does it look like? This series is called Real Life Wisdom. And if you put the word real in front of something, it makes a difference to us. Real leather. You know, I was looking, I was looking for some Windex wipes at a grocery store, and I saw pledge wipes with real lemon, and that sold me. I just had to have them. Uh, something about real. We have an expression we use with each other every now and then. Maybe it's just my generation. The younger ones will laugh at me. But when someone was... Uh, not being honest, we'd look at him and go, come on, get real. The word real matters. It's practical. It's useful. It's not just theoretical. So today we're going to talk about real life faith. What does it look like? But the passage we're going to use in James 2, beginning in verse uh, 14, is a passage that's been controversial historically in Christendom. Uh, it's, it's posed and pitted, rather, Paul versus James. Paul says in Ephesians 2, Within the passage, verses 8 through 10, he says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And people have held on to that passage and said, You're saved by faith. You're saved only by faith. Nothing else. Just faith. And then James comes along in James 2.14. Well, let me state this properly. James wrote this before Paul wrote his. James says, What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And so people historically have said, Paul and James are at odds. They disagree. Which one's right, Paul or James? And here's the answer, both. I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, and I believe there's no contradiction when you look at what each man was writing about to who he was writing and what the context was. Because if you want to take one verse out of the Bible, take it away from its original audience, take it away from the intent of the author, you can make the Bible say anything. If you leave a verse within its context, it will tell you what it's saying. So is there a controversy? Only a made-up one. Paul and James will come to agreement. See, Paul was addressing the issue of legalism, which means if I believe in God, I still have to keep all of these rules. James, well, he was dealing with apathy. He was dealing with people who said, it doesn't matter how I live my life as long as I believe in Jesus. Paul was focusing on what happens to a person internally. James was dealing with what was going on externally. Paul is talking about how to be birthed into Jesus, and James is talking about how to grow up in Jesus. Are they in conflict? Absolutely not. 
Paul said this in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith for a life of good works that God has already prepared for us to do. There's no controversy. Paul says, yes, you're saved by faith so that you can work out your faith in your life. There's no controversy. But there's been one made up. So what is this faith we're talking about? What does it look like? Well, some of you have heard me say this before, and just not to repeat myself so you understand that I'm not going to go after this negatively today. Uh, that's not my, my trend. That's not what I want to accomplish. But I want to say that sometimes you can define a word best by what it's not before you define by what it is. When you limit the scope, then you can have a better understanding of what we're dealing with. So what I'd like to do is give you four definitions of what real faith is not, and then I'd like to give you what I believe it really is according to James and his writings. So let's look at it that way. Number one, faith is real when it is not just something you say. It's not just a profession. In verse 14, what good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. But James points out that this person claims to have faith. They'll say they do, but there's no demonstration of it. It doesn't say he has faith. It says he claims it. And according to Gallup polls, every American's a Christian. Everyone proclaims that they believe in Jesus. Everyone says that I am a, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a good person. I try really hard. The last poll that I could find, 50 million Americans say I'm born again. Yet what I find fascinating is if you look at church attendance across the country, there aren't that many people going to church. Now, I know going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a theater makes you an actor. But we all know, don't we? that if you're going to be a part of the kingdom work, you're going to be a part of the kingdom people. And so if 50 million people say they're believers, but not that many people participate in the work of the kingdom, it may just be something we're saying. Because we call anybody a Christian who tells us they are. And I want to be really cautious and clear on this one. If you think I'm going to stand on the stage and decide who's in or who's out, it would be fun, but it would be ineffective. <laughs> I can't even figure out how to live my own life, nevertheless decide where anybody else is going. Because one of the things Jesus has told us clearly, you and I do not get to decide the eternal destination of a single person. Only Jesus himself does that. We need to encourage all men to pursue him. All women, all children, all nations to pursue him. He's the final judge. We never will be. However, Jesus did tell us in Matthew seven sixteen very clearly, by their fruits you will know them. By the evidence of their behavior by the choices they make, by the way they live out this profession. Because not everybody who's a professor of Christianity is a possessor of new life. And this is what James wants to awaken us to. So real faith is not just something you say. Second, faith is real when it's not just something you feel. Now, I'm going to talk to a group of people that are a little bit different than me, and I'm certainly not better. But no one's ever accused me of being a feeler. Now, I am. I just hide it really well. Growing up with three brothers, you didn't expose a lot in that environment and expect to survive. And I've learned to overcome it. I've asked God to, to allow people to see my, my feelings, but I don't live my life by feelings, and some of you do. And let me say this clearly. I envy you. My youngest son is a feeler. I envy him at times. He enjoys life more than I do. He's going to have a better time than I do. And there's parts of me that wants to be more like him. And then there's other parts I'm like, oh no, heavens no. I would, 
go on, do your thing, be you, I'm not going to do that. So if you're a feeler in the room, I'm not making fun of you. I really do envy your ability to experience more and enjoy more and bring that all in. But I want to caution you that don't let your faith be defined by your feelings. Or even in gatherings like this, you'll walk out and say, well, the music wasn't what I wanted it to be today, so I didn't get the feeling I wanted. So because I didn't get the feeling I wanted, I'm not being fed. Be careful. Be careful. We're not called to live by our feelings. We're called to live by our faith. And faith has a feeling component to it, but it can't be led by that. Because if all you need is to be spiritually high all the time, what will you do when suffering comes? What will you do when difficulty comes? What will you do when life punches you in the face and God allows it to happen? So we can't live our lives by feelings. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is it feeling like something should be done or feeling like you should do something or feeling like this is important and then not responding at all? You see, faith is more than just wanting to please Jesus. It's more than just desiring something. I'm going to I'm going to read a statement. It's going to have a, I'm going to say blank and you get to privately and quietly within yourself fill in the blank. There's two of them. Listen to the sentence carefully. I am not the quality of Blank, I want to be because I am blank. So you think to yourself, I'm not the quality of father I want to be. I'm not the quality of husband I want to be. I'm not the quality of of follower I want to be. I'm not the quality of student I want to be. I want not the quality of, and then why am I not that way? You see, it's not hard for us to define within ourselves what we wish we were. I mean, because if feelings and desires were all it took, I would be thin. And I would have won the marathon. And I would be wearing a a small t-shirt to let you know I work out. I I don't. I feel like I should. I feel like I want to. But that chair is so soft. Feelings. Faith cannot be led by feelings. Feelings. It has to be something more, something deeper. Real faith takes initiative. When you say, I wish I were a better this, it takes effort to overcome that, not just feelings and sentiment. 1 John three seventeen, John wrote, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? That's a, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Because right now, you read what's going on in Baton Rouge and you realize thousands, if uh, could be multiple thousands now, are without homes, have lost all of their possessions. We see it on the news and it's really easy to sit here in middle America and say, wow, I feel for them. But what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Because feelings don't get you off the couch. Feelings just make you feel better about your feelings. It's a circular thing. James 2.17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is what? Dead. Okay, so you feelers in the room are like, enough, I got it. And some of us are sitting back going, (laughs) give it to him, preacher. Uh, Now it's our turn. Real faith, uh, excuse me, faith is real when it's not just something you think. So here's the rest of us. We rational, logical ones. We who measure and weigh everything out and decide whether it's right or wrong. This is our time. Because there are many, many people 
who like to believe that faith is a proposition to be pondered and not something to be practiced. That they'll sit and think about Jesus and meditate about Jesus and read about Jesus and their hands and feet never engage Jesus. So it's not just something we think about. It's, it's not for people to have as an intellectual trip. For those of us who have studied the Bible academically, it is one of the most dangerous things you can enter into if you have no practical faith. Because you can talk yourself through three theologians for the centuries into concepts and ideas that are weighty and heavy and deep and intricate. But don't help a neighbor who's starving or a person who's hurting. So we have to be careful of this too. Verse 18. Some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, James says, and I will show you my faith by what I do. See, he's posing this intellectual objection that you have faith and I have deeds. That's great. How about different strokes for different folks? You live out your faith your way, I'll live out faith my way, and James says, be careful. He's imagining this argument. I read it one time, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure know they're there. Can I have an amen? <laughs> right? When faith is present, it's going to make a difference in you. It's going to demonstrate itself in each one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 from the contemporary English version. Anytime a person becomes a Christian, he becomes a new person inside. The old things have passed away and all things become new. Let me explain that verse in very practical terms. Would you agree with me that if you grabbed onto a 220-volt wire, you'd know it? If you grabbed onto the end of that, you would know a change had taken place in you, would you not? Do you believe that God's a little bit stronger and more powerful than a wire? Do you believe that the presence of God filled you? You might look different. You might respond differently. It might change the way you play this thing called life. I do. See, I don't see how someone as big and powerful as God can move into my life and it not demonstrate itself outside of a mere thought, a ponderance, or a devotional feeling. Real faith is not just something we say, it's not just something we feel, and it's not just something we think. And fourth and lastly, real faith, according to James, the way I see it, is not just something you believe. And this is where the church has to awaken. Because we'll give professions of belief. I'll get an amen, a holy harumph. I'll have people come up to me, that was good. And messages aren't meant to be good. They're not meant to be evaluated by whether or not they're entertaining. Messages are challenges from the word of God for us to become different, aren't they? For us to see and be changed and moved. It's easy for us to get in a rut. If I gave you a piece of paper right now and say, those of you that drove to the building today, how many times did you use your turn signal? You probably don't know unless you backtrack the entire way and said, well, I made so many turns, so I must have used it this many times. Well, how come you don't know right now how many times you've hit your turn signal? Because you can drive here with your mind turned off. You're behind a 2,000-pound vehicle with your family in it, and you drove yourself here, and you could have been mindless the whole time. And if you can do that with the safety of your family, can't you also see yourself being able to do that in your spiritual journey too? I get up on Sunday morning at the same time, I come to the same place, I do the same things, and it cannot be mentally accessed at all. I just can get in a rut. Now, I'm not making fun of you. Grab the wire. Wake up. Because if you don't lead this, if you don't own this, if we don't open our minds to making some changes, if you want to shock the world, get up and come at 8 o'clock here for services. And I, you know, I love Jesus, but not that much. 
Why? Because you'd have to get up before God to get here by 8 o'clock. And it's Sunday, and I don't know. No, I'm not saying that being here at 8 makes you more... Yeah, I am. No, no, I'm not. So being here at 8 doesn't make you more spiritual than those who come at 11 or 1045 or whenever. But notice that some of you have only, only come to this service. And when you can't make it at 915, you don't come. Because you're in a, you're in a lane, and it's mindless, and I just do what I always do. And what we say, we believe in Jesus. But that belief would alter our every moment, our every experience. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Let me tell you what I mean by the word belief. Who is Jesus to us? Is he God Almighty? Is he the creator of the heavens and earth? Is he the son of the living God? Is, he, is his death on the cross for each and every one of us? And we'll say, I believe all four of those things are true. So does Satan. Have you ever noticed when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that every single time Jesus comes in the presence of a demon, the demon professes who he is? And sometimes it makes me laugh. Jesus tells him to chill. Jesus will walk in a room and demon will go, that's the son of God. <laughs> Jesus will be quiet. Well, why would he want their profession to be silenced? Because it doesn't matter if their lives don't demonstrate it. Satan knows clearly who Jesus is, and he's still lost. So thinking, I go to church, I get the hall pass, I participate in things that look Christian, and I believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, grab a hold of the wire and be changed. Don't just say, it could change me. That's what we mean when we mean belief isn't what we're talking about. One preacher said, it's a little harsh, but I think it's effective. He said, a lot of folks are going to miss heaven by 18 inches, which is the distance between your brain and your heart, between what you know to be true and how you choose to live that out. See, James 2.20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without work is useless? So it's not something we say, think, feel, or say we believe. What is faith? Faith is real, according to James, when it's something that compels you. When it's something that leads your life, not just as a part of your life, but it is the purpose for which you live. And James gives two illustrations that couldn't be more distinct when you measure them. In fact, one takes him three verses, the other one he does in one verse. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham, pause, that's the big daddy, right? His audience would have read that and gone, oh, he's talking about the father of faith. He's talking about the one man that God chose after the flood and said, I am going to make you the father that brings to this world Jesus. And he's going to be the one that we call Father Abraham. And so he says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? His faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Scripture was fulfilled when it said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Now, here's a question I need to ask you. Was Abraham a believer and a follower of God before this moment? No one knows? Let me give you the answer. Yes. He had followed God. He had a relationship with God. He'd been called by God. He'd been blessed by God. He'd been led by God. Everything that would demonstrate a life of faith. And God said to him something interesting. He said, take your son, your only son. That sounds, 
I think I read that elsewhere in the Bible. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. Offer him to me as a sacrifice. Your son, whom you love. God seems, Tim, Tim Keller said it this way, and, I, and he's convicted me. He says he believes that what God was saying to Abraham was, you love Isaac more than me. So give me Isaac to show me you love me. That's harsh. And yet Abraham, as an old, old man, packs up his son, and he packs up his equipment, and they head to Mount Moriah. And at the foot of the hills, he tells his servant, stay here, we will come back. And he takes his son to the top, and he splits the firewood, and he builds the altar, and he places his son on the altar, and he brought a knife. He's so different than me. If I would have been asked to sacrifice either one of them, they would have said, take your oldest son, Alex, and sacrifice him. Ah, even the thought of that weirds me out. But I'd have gone to the top of the mountain and I'd have had Alex standing there and I would have sat in the corner pouting saying to God, there he is, I did it. If you want him dead, you take him. You can't expect this from me. And yet Abraham did exactly what he was asked to do. He split the wood, he built the altar, he placed his son, he drew the knife, he started to plunge the knife and God said, you showed me your faith. And James says, it wasn't just would he. When he was willing to, it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith led him to respond. Not so he would be saved, but because he already was. He already had a relationship with God, which is where faith comes from. And then, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then James does something really ridiculous. He uses another example, verse 25. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? What? Whoa, time out. You just went from Father Abraham to prostitute Rahab. James is making a massive point to his audience. Faith can be found in any life circumstance. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? I, I don't know if the story of Rahab gets you, but... Here's my variation on it. When I was a kid watching The Sound of Music every spring, and we would sit down and watch that. Do you remember when the, the Nazi soldiers were trying to catch the Von Trapp family? I know this is really spiritual, right? Are you with me? So remember when the Nazis came in, they went into where the nuns were, and they tried to find the Von Trapp family, and the nuns lied? And then they stole the battery cable things? Do you remember that moment in that film? As a kid, that bothered me. Because I was told, you never lie ever. And they lied, and the family escaped, and went and sang in the mountains, and everything was great. And I was like, ah. Oh. They, ah, what, what, what happened? And it says here, Rahab, did she not demonstrate her faith when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And he used an example where Rahab told the people looking for the spies that they weren't there and they were on her roof. So if you say, what's that all about? I have no clue. I need you to tell me. But James says, didn't she demonstrate faith in God? She did. Look at the difference. Abraham's a man. Rahab's a woman. Does that make difference in the day James wrote this letter? You bet. Abraham is Jewish. Rahab is not. Abraham is a patriarch, a hero. Rahab's a prostitute. Abraham is a player in the game of faith, and Rahab is a spectator. Yet when each one of them, in as distinct situation as they could be in, demonstrated faith by trusting the Lord, by obeying him, by living out what he asked them to do, when both of them responded, they were both given credit for what? Real faith. Not a theoretical proposition. 
but a practical lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul wrote this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I don't think Paul and James disagree at all because Paul couldn't write that if all he thought was you're saved by simply saying, I believe in Jesus. He's saying you're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now the faith that saves you compels you. It drives you. It leads you. Verse 26 of James 2. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now as a young preacher 20, 25 years ago, I would have ended this sermon by basically telling you, now get out there and try harder. But the older I become and the more patient God's been with me, I realized that that would ruin this message. That if you thought you had to try harder to make this happen. So here's what I want you to know. Faith is not believing in a methodology that will eventually win more than it loses. I'm not asking you to go out and try to think, what two or three things can I do today to prove to God I really love him so that he'll love me more so that I can go back to doing the things I like to do. Faith is not believing that this methodology of obeying will get you more wins and losses. Faith is actually believing that with every action of my life, with every choice I get to make, that Jesus is enough for every moment, every circumstance, and every command. It's not saying I'm going to try harder so he loves me more. Or I'm going to try harder so my preacher doesn't think I'm, I've quit. I'm going to try harder so people around me believe that I really love Jesus. No, I'm going to choose that faith is believing no matter my circumstances, no matter the choices in front of me, no matter what's in here, Jesus is enough for me. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he completed for me because I'll never be perfect. He gave me his perfection. And by his perfection, I can now live in that perfection. I won't be perfect. But I don't have to strive any longer to prove to anybody but God that I trust him. So no matter what my circumstances are, I will trust Jesus. No matter what my situation is, I will trust Jesus. No matter how much I'm scared. No matter how much the demand to take the thing I love and offer it to God. That Jesus is enough for me. Faith is not about you and I trying harder. It's about surrendering and submitting to the one who's enough. It's trusting our everyday life. It's really about getting real. Because we live in a world that will reward you for acting like a believer. But the reward we want is not what the world gives us. The reward we want is what only God can give us. And that is to say, well done my good and servant. We live in a world that says the easiest way to move Christians away from faith is not to tell them it's foolish. It's to give them a false faith. To let them be two or three degrees off center so that eventually, if you're two or three degrees off center, you just end up meandering in a way away from the core of what we want. Church, I'm not asking you to go try harder. I'm asking you to die to self and let every decision in your life be, what would Jesus desire of me? Because he's enough. So if you don't know what that means, as Maggie offered you earlier, we'd love to have a conversation with you. It doesn't happen to happen this morning. Send us an email. You can see us at the prayer center. If you've never surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ this morning, I'm telling you, the world can never give you what you're after. Only Jesus can. And when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you die to self and live to him. It's time to get real.
because faith matters and faith works. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.